0: Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My 4th Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your 4th Act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected 4th Acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just so happy to welcome Melissa Smith to the My Fourth Act podcast. Melissa is a retired civil servant and an amateur boxer. She wrote the book, The History of Women's Boxing, The Only History of Female Boxers, and maintains a popular blog, Girl Boxing, about the sport. At the age of 67, Melissa continues to go to the famous Gleason's Gym on the Brooklyn waterfront most mornings and boxes. I so look forward to my conversation with you, Melissa. Welcome.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Hakeem. I am so thrilled to do this with you.
0: I am as well. And for our listeners, full disclosure, Melissa and I met about 25 years ago in the 1990s in Manhattan when we were both. In a writer's group, and starting to write, and we're both writers. You know from the introduction that Melissa has published an awesome book. But the reason I wanted to speak with you, I was so struck that when you were in your forties, you made some really bold life choices. And we're both pretty much the same age now. I'm I'm sixty six. You're sixty seven. And it's interesting to look at what we are creating at this stage in our lives. So let's jump in. Okay.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: <laughs> now, when you were a young girl or a teenager, like what were your dreams or fantasies about what you wanted to do when you grew up?
1: I think um, that probably wanderlust is the best description. Um mm-hmm. From a very young age, my dad always read to me and and to my brother when we were very small. And when he was working his way through Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, I was in absolute fascination. I wanted to be on that road. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know all of those strange and wonderful characters. I wanted to go to places like Constantinople and Jerusalem. Uh, and then the, my favorite books were things like The Arabian Nights. And I would mm-hmm. plow through that and imagine myself on, you know, in desert sands and have genies on flying carpets, which, of course, you know, as we know now, is not the reality of what those lives are like. But for me as a child, they were, they held fascination. And so I, I wanted that kind of exploration in life. I wanted to go to places where I would be strange, just as strange as the people that I would be encountering. One other experience really stands out. I think I was about nine. And my dad was had uh, some friends who were going to Australia by freighter. And he took me along to their party in the stateroom, And that was probably one of the most exciting days of my life. Was being in that stateroom, overcrowded with people, champagne bottles being, <laughs> you know, uncorked, and such joy, and all I could think about was that could be me. I could be on that road. I could find some really strange landscapes and and enjoy the world through eyes that I had never really thought about. So, I think that's it.
0: Well, I hear. I hear the seduction and the lure of adventure, and you use this wonderful word explore as you're talking about this, and, and one of the gifts of the fourth act conversations and our fourth act is that if we dare, we can continue to explore, and even though adventure may have a different meaning you know, as we get older. I want to go right to the time when we met when we were both in our early 40s, but I I wouldn't be remiss by not at least mentioning, in light of what you just said, that part of your adventurous streak did take you to Russia, didn't it? And you did some work in the peace work, the Peace Corps. Is that correct?
1: It, that is correct. I was actually in the first class of Peace Corps volunteers to go to the Russian Far East. You know, the, country, the Russian Russia was created. You know, the, the Russian Federation. Began life in December of 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union, and I was in country in November of 92. And those were extraordinary experiences. Being sort of on a frontier, if you will, at a time of sort of national tragedy, if you will kind of being in in a place which was going through a collective nervous breakdown, everything that everyone had believed in no longer existed. And they had to kind of find their way into an existence and being there at that time uh, was extraordinarily humbling, but it also gave me an opportunity to travel in the region. So I spent a lot of time traveling all around Asia and, you know, it scratched, if you will, that lifelong desire for, travel and for being in, in different landscapes and places, but it also gave me uh, remarkable opportunities to touch the lives of other human beings and to see how much we were really all the same, and that our struggles are always very similar kinds of struggles.
0: Could you give us a specific example of touching the life of another person? I, I know when we travel, there are so many encounters, and it's hard to pick sure. one, but if One word to jump out.
1: I I was traveling through China by myself in 1992. And I had heard that there was a place in what's called Inner Mongolia at that time, which is a state within China, where you could go see the Genghis Khan mausoleum. And I like have to go. It was quite an, an arduous journey by train and then bus. And One of the things that I had read about is that among the Chinese uh, tribal folks from that region, there was the burgeonings of sort of a religious movement in celebration of their relationship to Genghis Khan as a Mongolian. And so when I arrived in in this part of China and was waiting for the bus to take me to Mm -hmm. the town with the Genghis Khan Mausoleum. There was a man who looked at me rather furtively and then started bowing in prayer with his hands up and sort of just these quick bows. Then he would look, eyes would dart right, hearts would dart left, and somehow between my non-existent Chinese and his non-existent English, I figured out that he was a pilgrim and that he wanted to connect with me to have this truth or to be able to express this moment of his own pilgrimage. Now, I was a pilgrim of sorts, and then I'm on this travel mode. But he wanted to touch me with his religiosity, because he felt the freedom to be able to do that. And part, I guess, because there I was this lone Caucasian woman in a sea of Chinese people. But that really filled me. And when I went into the Genghis Khan mausoleum, I I noticed that there were oranges and bottles of liquor and all these gifts that people would leave. This kind of exposure and touchstone with me really affected me. It's, it affects me to this day. And it lets me understand that our humanity is something that we always carry. We just sometimes have to allow ourselves to be open to what that really means.
0: I have traveled a lot myself, you know, I had a traveling childhood and, and you just invoked in me the, the power of connection and different kinds of connection, and how it can happen in unexpected and unlikely places. And obviously, since we're both writers, that the metaphor of being a pilgrim and a seeker is beautiful, you know, for all of our journeys in life. I want to go to when I first met you, because you had just started boxing. And I'm going to throw out the stereotypes. Now, boxing, we think of as a rough man's sport. And uh, our listeners already know that you are very much involved in championing the role of female boxers through your writing and through other professional involvements. What what in you wanted to do some boxing? Where did that come from?
1: Well, you know, I I think I always liked it. When I was a little kid, I, I grew up in the time of Muhammad Ali. And mm-hmm. you know, was I was always very taken with him as a figure. And I just liked it. I don't know why. I just always did. I liked watching it. And when I was about 12, I had an uncle who was showing my brother and I how to do the old one-two. You know? And yeah. the proudest I could ever be was at the, the fact that I actually knew how to turn a jab, which is that you you kind of start with your hand on your side and then you throw it out and you twist it so that it's nice and straight. And the fact that I could actually do that sustained me for decades. I would sometimes just sit there and just throw a one-two and <laughs> feel so proud of myself But it was ridiculous. But the, what I never was able to do was to make that leap. To understand that me as a gendered female, that I could always have practiced boxing. I could always have performed it. And it took me really till the time I met you in the in the mid 90s to understand that, yeah, I can, I can go into a boxing gym and hit a boxing bag. And that was enormously freeing for me. And those first months when I boxed, I would I would do my exercises. I had a trainer. I would do all my rounds. And I would end up with tears streaming down my eyes. He looked at me like I was out of my friggin' mind. But what he didn't understand was how freeing this felt. Mm -hmm. Because I could assert my own physicality and my own physical strength. And boxing was a metaphor for that, for that ability to really uncage one's own power. And I think women, especially women in our generation, good girls always contain their emotions, always contain their feelings, would never, ever, ever be angry or express any kind of physical power. So being able to then do that was a remarkably freeing experience and really unlocked so much for myself and even as I became a mother in my you know, late 40s, it allowed me to be able to transfer some of that to my own female child so that I would never hold her back or restrain her physical sense of her own being.
0: I loved, loved that phrase, uncage yourself, that you used and, and the fact that you gave yourself permission to uncage yourself in your 40s. In many ways, you just mentioned becoming a late mother. We're going to talk some more about writing. All of these were emergences in your life, in your forties, which is friggin' awesome. Did you start off going? Was Gleason's gym the gym that you went to for boxing when you started, or where do, physically where did you start?
1: I think my first my first gym was like the local health club that mm-hmm. had a guy who taught boxing. And I went to that, and it was not particularly satisfying. It was a class. There were about 10 people. I was the least experienced. He had zero patience for me. I mean, I had no idea what wrapping your hands were or anything else. And we had to do these exercises, and I was really bad. I thought, oh, this is a disaster. But I had always heard of Gleason's Gym, and I was like, damn it. It's in Brooklyn. I'm living in Brooklyn now. I am going. And that when I uh, at that time, uh, it it was up on the second floor of an industrial building in Dumbo before Dumbo was Dumbo. Yeah. (laughs) uh,
0: For our international uh, listeners, Dumbo is a very trendy, fashionable part of Brooklyn, but it wasn't always.
1: It was not always. It was a very industrial space and climbing those stairs and, and coming into this cavernous gymnasium with four rings and, you know, dust on the dust. (laughs) It was quite a sight. And of of course, there's never any air conditioning in a boxing gym. But coming in, I I really felt like I had crossed a divide. And Mm -hmm. in doing that alone, I had shown myself that I I could really become what it was I was seeking. And then, you know, I wandered around, I met the owner of the gym who really embraced me and And I will say that Gleason's in particular is a gym that has always, since the early 80s, provided a safe safe space and safe haven for women to practice the sport. So I immediately felt very embraced. I started working with the trainer and the affirmation of that and the encouragement of all the denizens of the gym who, you know, you come with some regularity. We'll see you and go, hey, champ, how are you? Great to see you again. You know, and it, it just felt normal and natural and, and wonderful.
0: What I heard, I, I love the phrase denizens of the gym. You you became one of the denizens, you were part of the club. In my mind, and I'm not a boxer at all, but even in my mind, Gleason's is an almost legendary boxing gym. Can you just tell us a little bit about the history so we can appreciate? what you stepped into when you walked through those doors?
1: Sure. Gleason's Gym was originally a gym established in the Bronx in the 1930s. It was sort of in the heyday of like neighborhood boxing. Literally, you could go through a 10-block radius and have two or three clubs. But Gleason's quickly became a place of champions. And whether it's folks, young kids who were competing to, to fight in what's called the Golden Gloves, which mm-hmm. in the United States was this sort of amateur boxing process, championship that would then allow you to have entree to the professional ranks. And then eventually it lost its space in the Bronx and it was on West 30th Street, right around the corner from Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. So it had a very storied existence there, Any boxer who was going to fight at the garden would spend their last week of training camp at Gleason's Gym. So it had people like Muhammad Ali would go there to train. So it it had a real sense of being a part of the texture and fabric of boxing itself. From the standpoint of, of women in the sport, it was really the first gym in New York City to embrace and encourage women to come into the gym. The owner Bruce McLade used to say that in the early '80s, there was in those late '70s, early '80s, there were certainly a lot of financial woes in the gymnasium mm-hmm. world. They said, "Well, why are we excluding half the population? Let's start bringing in women." <laughs> so they, uh, because they only had one bathroom, they would have women's nights. They would close the gym to men, and they would just have women. And some of those women, there you know, are still involved in the sport a woman named sparkle lee who was the first ref professional referee in in new york state she started in their program a woman named jackie atkins who's a legendary trainer uh, in the new jersey sports world she runs a gymnasium in south new jersey so it had real power and 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 it radiated out if you will across the country yeah and then when When the gym moved, finally, um, it lost its space in Manhattan and moved across the river into Brooklyn. The big thing that Bruce insisted on was building a women's locker room as well as a men's locker room. So right from the beginning, women were always welcome. There was no longer a women's night. Just everybody who fought,
0: fought. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. At the same time, because we met in a writer's group, you were nurturing your writing side. And so many people that I know, and you probably know, say, oh, I have a book in me, or I want to write something, or I always wanted to tell this story. And it's easier and easier to do it these days with self-publishing and blogs and all those things. But but many people still don't do it. So what what drew you to writing to wanting to write to what did you want to write about at that time in your life?
1: Well, I, I think writing to me was always wrapped up in travel and and in documenting the world. So at the, at the time that I met you, I was very engaged in um, creative nonfiction, mm-hmm. memoir writing, sort of to try to tell the story of the places I'd seen. And uh, and also of the that the interior journey that happens as part of those experiences. You know, I always say that I, I had one life till I was around 40, and then I developed a second life. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tease out for myself through writing that renewal process, that that rebirth, if you will. And it, it led to, you know, publishing stories and journals and poems. I never quite got a book completed through that early process but writing as a practice became part of my everyday world Mm -hmm. so that later when I was offered an opportunity to write a book on the history of women's boxing I really understood the craft.
0: I like your description of the craft of writing Melissa and I'm just thinking it must not be that dissimilar from the practice of boxing and the repetition in boxing and what our bodies learn in boxing and what, in turn, we we learn about ourselves through the act of boxing. I just want to make this point. You met your husband, Jed. You had a daughter at the same time, late in life. And somewhere around there, you decided to go back to school. <laughs> and and i know that writing the book and the beautiful part and i'm stressing this because sometimes we're as a culture where we're taught to be so goal driven and my sense of your journey is you pursued a bunch of things and at some point the dots connected is that an appropriate way to describe your journey
1: i would say that that's absolutely the case and interestingly my my career kind of ended in the same way because my career as a civil servant ended with me becoming believe it of all things a procurement expert now it's the procurement what is that it's could you insanity. just sh-
0: could you shamelessly mention your last title and where you did this in New York because, sure. <laughs> yeah this you like everybody else you you many people in government start in their 20s and you started way later so
1: i started in government at 52 as a procurement analyst and in my last job, I was the assistant commissioner agency chief contracting officer at housing preservation and development, which is the largest housing agency in the United States, a municipal housing agency mm-hmm. in the United States. My career was in two different agencies. I started my career at the fire department and then went to housing preservation and development, which, you know, <laughs> it's like if if one, one land was going to land in in. In Civil Servant Heaven, those are the two places to go. I raise it because it became the culmination of all the jobs I ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. I've done television production. I've been a construction manager. I was an IT executive for 15 years. All of those things came together as a procurement person because I understood the world of the vendor. I understood the, the, the need for procurement folks to have expertise in those areas so they could blend what it is to procure and all of the rules and regulations of the city government, which is insanely like you know Byzantium and the Ottoman Empire all meshed together, mm-hmm. and explain that to folks who need whatever it is they need, don't know how to get there, And also help them understand what it is they really want to buy. So it was a very challenging, very fascinating career to suddenly find myself in and then really run with. But like boxing, like writing, you have to always call on all of these other experiences Mm -hmm. in your life. Because if you're in a ring and you're sparring with someone and you're not really present, you're going to get clocked and you're going to end up on the ground and it's going to hurt. So you have to be on the game. You have to be kind of in tune with yourself. And it's the same thing when you, you know, have a budget of $150 million to buy fireboats. It better be right. <laughs> Cause it's the people's money. So for me, the way my life unfolded, it did feel sometimes chaotic, but that, that transition into my forties of sort of saying, you know what, I'm renewing myself. And that renewal is going to be a a dedication to being true to who I am as a human being. And by doing that, I then teased out all the things that were really important. And by having those things in my mind, Anything after that, work, relationship and marriage, being a mother, none of those things ever felt as if they were taking away from myself. They were only adding to myself. And that's one of the things I saw in other parents, you know, they, they feel annoyed by their children. They're like, okay, sometimes, yeah, kids are annoying, but it doesn't take away from yourself as a human being. And I think if I learned anything in that Process and what brought me to saying, Yeah, you know what? I can go back to school and get a master's degree and not study business, but study what I like liberal studies. Who knew? (laughs) Doing that was all additive because I felt secure enough in myself to be able to add that in. And by adding that in, I was adding to everything else in my world. And like, yeah, sometimes I'm tired or busy, but that process really brought me to the understanding that my life was limitless, even though we're in limited space and time, that one can always continue to grow, continue to explore, continue to be that traveler in life and to embrace it positively and to understand whatever the obstacles are, even if it's a lousy pandemic COVID year, you can continue and work your way through it.
0: And your life is really an embodiment of all of that stuff that you just said. I I introduced you as an amateur boxer. And my sense is, I don't want to test this, and I want to give you a chance to so, do a deeper dive into boxing, is that when you were asked to write the book on you know the women's history of boxing, my sense of that In that sense, it professionalized you as an authority in the field, and you're active in, in a very professional way, not as a competitive boxer, but in other ways in the boxing industry right now, in ways that I find really cool. Could you just walk us into that?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so I went back to get my master's degree. I was, I don't know, 56, 57, something like that. And I ended up deciding to do my thesis, uh, my I had an interest in boundaries and borders. And when I started it, I, I had come in, you know, with a background in history. So I uh, had an undergraduate degree in history. So I really thought I would look at things like nationalities. And the first year of my work did, I, I did lots of research on uh, on things like the Ottoman Empire and and the Byzantium and the Greek nationalism as three layers in the same location. And I was very fascinated with that. But as part of my program, I really wanted to experience boundaries or explore boundaries across many different constructs. And one of the things I looked at was boundaries from the perspective of taboos, really kind of looking at it from an anthropological perspective. And read Mary Douglas, who's a real authority on taboos in the field. And in doing that, I was like, wait a minute, boxing, duh. What's the case for women in a sport where it's a taboo? Yeah. How do I tease out that as going beyond the boundary? Mm -hmm. So I, I totally retooled what I was doing and I ended up writing a thesis on. It's called "Women in Motion," and using the case of women's boxing to see how it defies boundaries. And the boundary there is the gender binary. And what does a gender binary really mean? So I, I tease that out, as I said, as part of my thesis, and then was uh, starting to give papers at things like the Popular Culture Symposium <laughs> which is in the sports t- group and out of that was approached by uh, a publisher to say hey we're we're looking to do titles on women's box on women's sports like I'm there so i did develop the book a history of women's boxing which is in fact the first and spent two years really teasing that out and as part of that process immersed myself in the history of the sport but much more so in sort of the the what we call modern women's boxing which started somewhere in the 1970s coinciding with the feminist movement mm-hmm. and a, a really fascinating history to tease out so by the time the book was published I had a review in Ring magazine which always called itself the bible of boxing and the reviewer called my book the bible of women's boxing and that was probably the proudest day of my nice, life nice
0: <laughs> nice nice
1: so since then uh yeah I, I write about boxing women's boxing i tweet about it i do all the social media stuff but i also am called on uh on the radio on on different sports podcasts And have become involved in a few organizations. One is the International Women's Boxing Hall of Fame. Uh, We started that in 2014. It was kind of awards of our own, if you will. And I'm on the board with that organization. And we will, in fact, be meeting this coming weekend, uh, bestowing our 2020 and 2021 awards uh, in Las Vegas. So that's very exciting. I've also now am on the ratings committee with Ring Magazine itself with nine other historians and other boxing experts and professionals and we rank women's boxing fighters that's been since 2020 it was the first year to really start that which is an enormous milestone mm-hmm. for the sport. I also uh, am involved with the Boxing Hall of Fame up in Canastota, New York. I'm on their selection committee. They also uh, began to give Induct women into their Hall of Fame starting in 2020. Very, very, very big deal. And so I feel incredibly proud to be a part of that, but also to continuously represent the women who contest the sport, whether they're amateurs or professional. And and I really feel such dedication to that because these women really work so hard for so little. And are deserving of our attention, our time, and our respect.
0: You said that so humbly, but what I was thinking is you're really you're really um, an active force in helping shape professional women box women's boxing and and sort of the way women's boxes are honored, you know, acknowledged, celebrated, and you're actively championing that, right?
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. Yes, you are. Yes, yes, I are. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of the great things about Gleason's gym is that I train alongside champions. In fact, one of the women we're honoring this weekend, a boxer named Delisha Ashley, who literally was winning championships till she was 50. You mm-hmm. talk about second acts or fourth acts we are honoring her. And I, and I couldn't be prouder than to be able to read her name this weekend, because she is someone who has so inspired me, you know, plodding along in my Saturday boxer togs, you know, trying so hard to to learn as I watch her perform the sport. So I, I feel this real personal connection because I know their stories. I interviewed them, I I champion them um, as best I can in my limited fashion. And so being able to continue to assert my authority as a historian and then grow that relationship to the sport and my own knowledge of the sport and my own sense of how it needs to move what the, things, the kinds of things that have to happen for it to really move forward in a positive way for the women who contest it, such as things like pay equity and yeah. um, equal representation on fight cards and all sorts of little ins and outs that I, I'm really trying to champion as best I can. And working with my colleagues, um, whether sports writers or other folks who really expend a lot of time and energy in promoting women's sports. So I feel very proud to be part of that very small group.
0: Now, I know that you retired from the your New York, New York City job this January. So you're officially retired from regular full-time work. I know you're going. To, you're exploring more writing. Uh, I know you still work at a Gleason's gym. But my thoughts also go to your husband, Jed. Because I read, when when I first met you, and if this is wrong, please correct me. My memory is that you and Jed picked each other up in a bar. Is that correct?
1: That is right. Puffies, <laughs> so, if you must know. Which so you, is you, a really you cool it's,
0: it's a classic Manhattan story. You Absolutely. picked each other up in a bar. You've had a daughter. Your daughter is in college or just graduating from college. And your husband has dementia. And, and I'm moved by that because... Life is complex, and we all juggle multiple facets. Give us a sense of what it's like to, um, to adapt to, in some ways, taking care of your husband and how their relationship has changed.
1: Well, yes, you're right. He, he, we, we picked each other up at a bar. He was <laughs> a remarkably joyous figure. The kind of guy who would jump into a kayak and circumnavigate Manhattan at night and write about it. He was a writer and editor at the New York Times at the time. Mm -hmm. He retired about 10 years ago now. And shortly after his retirement, we began to notice certain changes, although couldn't quite put our name to it. But then about four years ago, he was formally diagnosed as having A form of dementia called frontotemporal degeneration, which is quite different than Alzheimer's. It ends up, unfortunately, in the same space, but its presentation is more behavioral than memory based. And for Jed, it has meant that he has lost empathy, his affect has changed, his sense of of omnipotence can be quite dangerous at Mm -hmm. times. But more to the point, now that we're sort of, we think, probably 10 years in, although, again, formally diagnosed four years in, his short-term memory is starting to become really challenged. So during the pandemic year, I was still working from home, starting in March of 2020, and being at home all day, every day they led me to understand just how far things had slipped. Because you know when one is working full time, you come home, you see a person at home for a few hours, don't necessarily notice all of the minute behaviors. But being home all day, every day did. So I had already done things such as join a caregiver group to give me support. I had found different groups to engage him with although he's part of the one of the hallmarks for him is a lack his inability to really socialize anymore mm-hmm. he finds it enormously difficult to communicate with people it's or to have too much noise it's even difficult for him to be in the same room with my daughter and I at the same time because he gets uh, he's overloaded and bombarded with mm-hmm. stimulus so recognizing all of that and it, Part of my that calculus of of formally retiring from full time everyday work was the understanding that I was needed at home. That it's time to lean in to where he is in his life to give him the best life possible for whatever time he has remaining, and that is means recognizing what he can and cannot do which changes day to day because Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a really good day and we'll go out and have a lovely walk and he'll be extraordinarily observational and find quarters on the street and talk to me about the birds and all the other little things that he sees, let's say walking through a park. And on other days, he just wants to get back home. From the standpoint of your question, Akeem, about what does it do to your relationship it's heartbreaking because it's almost like morning in life in a way. Yeah. Because you're watching a person slip away from themselves. Yeah. And there are those moments of recognition that he has. And he'll just look at me like, shoot me. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. What I've also seen though is his adaptation. He's truly living. In the moment. You know, I guess all of us have this sort of be here now. You know, when I went to Buddhist school in Thailand in 1990, I was like, be here now. Like, I never really quite got it, but I get it now. Be here now for him means I'm just here. I'm hungry. I'll eat. Or I forgot I was hungry, but I'm gonna eat. It's it's kind of this mindset that keeps him joyful. Because if he starts to ruminate about future, he can't get there. It's, yeah. it's enormously painful and becomes painful for me because how we forecast the future becomes impossible. It doesn't mean that we don't fantasize about dreams. Like, we're going to hike the world. We're going to hike and walk across England. And he has all these hiking boats. So this is a man who you know, circumnavigated the Matterhorn. You know? so, he, he remembers all of that, but the, there's also the reality that, you know, we really can't hike the entire Wales Trail. Not going to happen because he's gotten to the point where we really can't kind of walk down four or five blocks without him getting out of breath. Yeah. So that reality hits me in the face sometimes and yeah. it's overwhelming. But then I take a deep breath. And I say, no, be here now, prepare for the future, put the things I need in place, put the the processes that I need for myself to be able to, to be his caregiver, and then let it go. Just be here now. Mm-hmm. Enjoy what time there is, because I just don't know what that next story is going to look like.
0: Thank you for giving us a glimpse into that adjustment in your life and when you said just let it go and enjoy what is which sounds so friggin obvious but is not always easy to do that might be a perfect segue to it's a question i ask in every podcast so when based on what you know now as a 67-year-old woman who in her 40s sort of bust out and renewed herself in many different ways. If you could whisper some words of wisdom into, into your younger version, what would you want her to know, young girl, teenager? What would you say to Melissa?
1: I would say stop being frightened. Mm-hmm you know the anticipation is always much harder than the actual reality and sometimes you just you just have to put one foot in front of the other and i again that sounds obvious but it's a very difficult thing to do yeah because it means one has to trust oneself yeah and i think that's a very very hard thing to do yeah at least it was for me it took me a long time to trust that i could have the right instinct yeah. and that moving wherever i was going to go it was going to be the right thing to do that if if my intention was true if my heart was true if i was being honest with myself it was going to work out yeah. so i i think that's probably the best advice i could give that that's beautiful
0: know. advice as I get ready to say goodbye to you, if, if our um, listeners want to learn more about you, what you're doing, um, you already mentioned you're very active in social media. Where would you like to direct folks?
1: Well, I guess I have a Twitter and an Instagram account at Girl Boxing Now, which is probably the best. I do have a blog, girlboxing.org. I'm not as active as, I, as it has been, but it will become active again. And those are probably the three best places to go and I just want to thank you I think this series because people lose sight of the fact that we never stop that we are always becoming we may not agree with it we, we may not acknowledge it I guess that's yeah the term, but we really always are and it's important to realize that never despair about it. it it just is whatever that trauma is in the road whatever that fork is, you'll get there. It's just be true into it and you'll be all right.
0: I agree. And I, uh, as we say goodbye, I know you're heading to Las Vegas tomorrow. So I, I wish you a fantastic journey in the company of powerful women boxers. That sounds really great.
1: Thank you so much, Akeem. And thank you again for having me on this wonderful program. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks.
0: Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.